I almost forgot I was preaching. I was having so much fun. I just, you know, you run into people and go, I need to talk to you a lot, but I only have a minute. It's just not right. Uh, this morning, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 20. And uh, this is not going to be one of those touchy-feely sermons that uh, sometimes we get into. And so let's just pray and ask God to use his word to change our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of your life-transforming power and grace, the Holy Spirit working through your truth to both challenge, convict, and transform us into the image of Christ. Father, as we come to a text this morning that is really one of those texts that uh, is a burden to me because I know that there are people who don't know you and yet some are deceived. They don't even know they don't know you. Others know they are lost and yet do not want to bow the knee to Christ. And for the rest of us who do know you, we thank you, Lord, and we admit that we are sinners and we still need your grace every day, every moment of every day. As that song we sang reminded us, we need you every hour. Father, as we listen to you speak to us through your word, may we leave here honoring you by responding in a Christ-glorifying way to your message. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine skydiving. I've never done this. I thought I might have done this when, before I had children, but after that, things like skydiving and bungee jumping become less wise in my estimation. But imagine skydiving, and you jump out of a plane at 15,000 feet, and you begin to plummet to earth. Gravity begins to suck you down. You reach terminal velocity of about 125 miles per hour. And as you approach, as you're looking at your watch and you're looking at the, you know, altitude, you realize it's about time to, to pull the ripcord, to deploy your chute and float gently to earth. You know that if you don't do that, that striking the earth at 125 miles per hour will ruin things for you. <laughs> it will ruin the rest of your life. And, and what if you just decided, you know, I'm going to land my own way. I'm just going to flap my arms really hard and, and just kind of slow myself down and just, just gently like a bird land on the earth or or maybe you decide i'm just gonna like breathe in a lot and just kind of inflate myself and like a balloon just gently touch down or maybe i know what i'm gonna do right when i hit i'm gonna tuck and roll and just disperse the energy and i am going to 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 just be unscathed those would be very foolish very foolish things to try because they would not work. It's either pull the ripcord or die. Those are the only two ways. Well, as sinners, we are born into this world with the curse of Adam upon us. We are born plunging down with the gravity of sin towards judgment. We commit our own sins and increase velocity and there is only one way to escape. 
It's to pull the ripcord of repentance and faith in Christ. And if we don't do that, we will face the consequences of judgment. Yet there are many in the world today who reject Christ, but are still expecting to escape judgment. Some deny that God exists, and that's how they, quote, deal with it. Other people, they they try to recreate God in their own image and say, well, my God would never. And thus, they fabricate an idol in their own imagination and trust in that idol. Still others pursue false religions. Some try to distract themselves with busyness and others try to postpone placing their faith in Christ until some other far-off time when they might find it more convenient. And the fact is, there are only two options. Either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or be judged. That is it. There is no mediating ground. There is no rejecting Jesus, but escaping impact. And this is the thrust of our text this morning. It is the last week of Jesus' life. It is his passion week. Jesus has already showed up, done some miracles, gone into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry where multitudes were gathered all around crying out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed be the king of David. And all this has caused quite a stir because it's Passover week. There are Jews from all over the place crammed into Jerusalem. And so news about this has spread that there's this guy and he's calling himself the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. And multitudes have gathered to worship him. And now he's in the temple teaching. It's probably Tuesday of Passion Week, the week that a lot of people refer to as the day of questions because it was on Tuesday of that week that so many questions were asked and answered. And what's interesting, this is one of the most detailed days that is uh, this particular account and and the events of this day are are listed in more detail than almost any other day in Jesus's life, except really his crucifixion. The Jewish leaders, uh, they ask a question about Jesus and his authority. Jesus asked them about John the Baptist. The Pharisees asked their question about paying taxes. The Sadducees asked Jesus about the woman with seven husbands. The scribes asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. And Jesus asked them about Psalm 110. And so if you haven't looked there already in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I know this may seem like a miracle to you, but we're actually going to do it. The reason is, is I was going to break this text down, but it really needs to be taken in a, in a chunk. Verses 1 through 8 provide the situation that led to Jesus giving the parable and the verses which follow. So it's really uh, difficult to break them up. So we're going to look at them in one big chunk. 
unlike usually where I read the text first, we're just going to read it as we go so that it will just unfold because the text is kind of long. But our outline will consist of three questions and one consequence. The first question is this. Do you question Jesus's authority? Now, before we answer the question, let's just consider what it means to question Jesus's authority. Jesus being God in human flesh, Jesus being the ruler of heaven and earth, the the king of kings and the Lord of lords is the sovereign ruler of all. He is almighty God and he is the one who owns us and sustains us and he has a right to tell us what to do because he is the king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now the question is, are you fine with that? Are you fine with Jesus telling you what to do? Are you fine with Jesus telling you what to read? What to watch? How to speak? How to be an employee? How to be an employer? Are you fine with Jesus ruling your life? Not just giving him a little bit of time, but giving him your whole life. And say, you are my king. Rule my life. Many in the church today are quick to admit that Jesus is Lord, but he is not their Lord. They don't want Jesus ruling and reigning over every area of their life. And usually they pick and choose what areas they're going to give to Jesus. I will let him have these areas and these areas, but not all areas. This is an effect to... Make Jesus subservient to you. It's to say, Jesus, I need your salvation, so I'll take that part. I need you to help me when I need things, so I'll pray and you can give me what I want. But I'm not going to give you this relationship. I'm not going to read my Bible, even though you say. I'm not going to commit and become a member of a church because I don't want to place myself under that much accountability. And so I'm going to give you some things, but not all things. And so really by doing that, you're putting Jesus under you. You are Lord then of Jesus rather than him being Lord of you. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 20 of Luke's gospel. And we read this on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Back up in, in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 47, it says he was teaching daily in the temple. That was Luke's just quick summary. We know this included preaching the gospel. That is, he was telling people that he was the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Redeemer of Israel. Now, you can imagine how this angered the Jewish leaders. They've got this rogue guy on the Temple Mount. He's, he's attracting huge crowds. Just the day before, they were crowded around. The whole Kidron Valley was full of people throwing their coats in the ground, waving palm branches, putting brush. He was on a, a colt, just like the prophet said. They said, Hosanna in the highest. They called him the Messiah, and they were all worshiping him just right outside our Temple Mount. And now the guy has the audacity to come up here and stand and preach this to the people who have gathered in masses because of the Passover. And now, not only that, he's challenging our authority. 
You see, we were the ones who gave the money changers. We were the ones who gave the sacrifice sellers the authority to do business on the temple mount. Of course, we got a cut of the action, but he drove them away. And he's not even a rabbi, and yet he's teaching and preaching daily. Who gave him this authority? Look at the middle of verse 1. The chief priests and scribes and the elders confronted him and spoke to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? And who is the one who gave you this authority? See, they're the policemen. You didn't ask permission. You weren't approved. We didn't say you could drive out the money changers. You're just a rogue. You're doing your own thing. And so what we want to know... We want to know is by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Well, the first question is pretty much they know. The answer is implied. Jesus is declaring himself and the people are declaring him to be the Messiah. That is why he can do those things. Because if he is the Messiah, he's above them. And then the second question plays right into this. And who or by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? This second part, who gave you this authority follows because the question is, are you saying that God appointed you? That's what they're asking. And so really they're asking this. What we want you to do, Jesus, and all the crowds are listening. The Jewish leaders have all gathered. The chief priests The elders, the scribes, which made up the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the temple mount watchers. What we want to know from you and what we want you to do is make a public statement and make it clear that you indeed think you're the Messiah and that you indeed think you're appointed by God. Well, Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question and you tell me. Jesus then enters into a game of bartering with them. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll make my public statement. But you make your public statement. I ask you a question, you answer me, then I answer yours. Deal? Look at verse 4, Jesus asked a very simple question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? What a simple question. All they need is a one word answer. Heaven, men. I mean, you know, that's pretty basic. You couldn't get more Basic than that, right? Heaven or men. That's it. They, 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 they get answered the question. And so all the Jews are looking at them to see how they're going to answer this question. Look at verse 5. And they reason among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe him? And if we say from men... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. John the Baptist was the forerunner of who? The Messiah. John the Baptist pointed people to who? To Jesus. If they admitted John's message was from heaven, they would be admitting that Jesus was the Messiah. And since John's death, he had reached prophet status and martyr status in the eyes of the people. And people were pretty excited about it because 
God hadn't sent a prophet to Israel in over 300 years. And now they were like, yeah, we got her. We finally got another prophet and he came and they killed him. John was a sign of hope that God hadn't forgotten his people. And the people loved that. And that's why the Jewish leaders thought, well, we can't tell him. We can't say that he wasn't a prophet. They'll kill us. Look at verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. This answer reveals their dishonesty. They didn't say, we don't want to answer you, but we don't know. But they did know. They did know. They lied in order to escape the criticism from the people. In order to escape admitting that Jesus was the Messiah. Listen, all you got to do is go through the Gospels and you realize that John and the circumstances of his birth were miraculous. His father saw an angel, lost his voice, got it back when he named John. You remember that? It said all Judea was talking about it. Then when he started his ministry, it says all Judea was going down into the Jordan River and being baptized by him. And the religious leaders were there. It's probably some of these same people were there. They heard John preach. They heard John's message. They saw John say the Messiah is coming. Then Jesus comes. And then John says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the greater one. You know, it's pretty easy. They knew the scriptures that there would be a voice crying out in the wilderness. John was in the wilderness. I mean, you know, it's not difficult. Jesus has been wandering around doing miracles for three years. They've been hounding him, watching him, talking about it. They know. I mean, if you look down in verse 21, notice what it says there. This is just a little bit later that day. And they questioned him, same religious leader, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Now, notice they're admitting it right here. And you think, well, Jack, you know, they're probably just, you know, buttering him up here. They're trying to lay another trap for him. They're, they're, they're oiling him up so that they can try to get at him. And it's true. They probably are. But the fact is, they knew. You say, well, how do you know that? Do you remember what happened even early on in Jesus' ministry when Nicodemus, a ruler of the Pharisees, came to Jesus by night? And John chapter 3, verse 2 says what? We know that you are from God. Because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. We know that you are from God. So there was no question in their mind about who John was and who Jesus was. That wasn't the issue. The issue was their unwillingness to submit to the truth. They knew. They knew. They just didn't want to admit it because the consequences were displeasing. And this is why Jesus says in verse 8, if you look there, well... Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They say, well, we don't know. He goes, well, then I'm not telling you. You don't make your public statement about John. I'm not making my public statement about my authority there. And of course, all of this is the situation that leads to the parable that we're going to be looking at in a minute. Now, 
you know, when you look at this, you might say, well, Jack, this, this whole parable here and the situation here, I mean, what is the, you know, it seems like it's all about Jesus and the religious leaders and, and they're gone now. And so what does it have to do with this? Well, all scripture is profitable. And there are things here to learn about the, from the bad example of the religious leaders. I'm just going to rattle these off because it would be a whole series of sermons to even go through them. But you might be able to just take some of these and, and use them for, I don't know, quiet time or whatever. If you look at the text and you meditate on it, you will see these things not to do in the lives of the Sanhedrin, this ru- ruling Jewish council. One, devotion to self above others. Refusal to believe the scriptures. Refusal to believe the miracles that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. Pride. Greed. Dishonesty. Lust for power, control, and authority. The fear of man. A murderous heart. Religion without a relationship with God. Unwillingness to submit to Jesus' lordship. I mean, you could see how you could just jump into that. The point we want to focus on is their questioning of Jesus' authority. I mean, imagine being transported to heaven and you are brought before the throne of Christ and it is radiant. There are those myriads of angels attending his throne and you see him there. And he speaks and his voice is like the sound of many waters and it shakes the heavens and all creation kind of gains attention. And he looks at you with those eyes that are a flame of fire and he says, come closer. And you say, no, and you step back. Does that kind of give you the willies? Does that kind of make you like cringe? You think, no, you don't do that. Because if you love the Lord, man, you don't, you don't do that. He's the king. You are the servant, the unworthy servant. You do what he says. Well, in reality, every time we sin, we say no to Jesus. We reject his authority. I'm not going to let you rule over my life and we step back when he says move forward and we expect this from unbelievers because they don't love christ they've never professed faith in christ they don't know the truth they're held captive by satan to do his will and we think yeah uh, you know unbelievers do this but you would not expect it from those who who say they love the lord and are followers of Christ. And yet every Christian knows the painful reality that that's how we are. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you quit sinning. And every believer knows the painful reality of having times when they succumb to sin and temptation and their own selfish desires and they say no to their Lord, their master, and their king. The difference is that an unbeliever does it And is fine, but the believer is grieved and longs for that day when they will be in the presence of Christ, blameless with great joy, cleansed perfectly, never to sin again. That's the difference. The believer and unbeliever sin alike, but one longs to obey perfectly. 
So the primary lesson I wish to point out is that Christians, our life should be characterized by Jesus's lordship in every area, not just those areas we choose. And if you think you can put Jesus on your leash, you don't know Christ. If you think, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to let Jesus rule over my life. I'll give him a little church time and give him a little this and a little that, but I'm going to keep the rest. He's not your savior. He's your judge. Secondly, do you reject Jesus's messengers? Look at verse nine. He began to tell them a parable. A parable is a true to life story. Jesus gave them to address uh, situations that he came across. It's not an allegory. Allegory. And parables are made up of metaphor, that is, words which represent something else. The difference is allegories are not true-to-life stories, you know, beasts with seven heads and ten horns, allegory. Um, Parable, a story that could really happen, like the one we're going to look at in a second. Jesus, of course, is giving this parable because the leaders there are questioning his authority and have rejected John who he just got through questioning them about. Look at the middle of verse 9. Jesus begins his parable. The man, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. Stop there. Notice at the beginning of verse 9, it says he began to tell the people. So he's turned away from religious leaders. They're still there, and there's a huge crowd, but now he's kind of scanning. He's speaking to the multitude. The religious leaders are listening in, and the parable is actually directed at them, but they don't know it. He's going to ambush them, as we'll see. And he talks about these people who have been given responsibility to take care of a vineyard. Vineyards at that time were very valuable uh, a commodity. They, were, uh, they produced a cash crop. Grapes were great. You could make raisins out of them, store them through the winter. You could eat them as fresh fruit. And more importantly, you could make them into wine, which was one of the more common drinks at that time, apart from water. It was common for those with a lot of land to to put up the capital to plant a vineyard. They would clear the land. They would take the rocks. They would make walls around the vineyard to keep the animals from sneaking in. They would usually carve out a vat so they could make the wine, trample the grapes, and they would also build a tower so that whoever was watching the vineyard, especially near harvest time, would be up there to make sure no one snuck in and ate the valuable crop. Now, if you've never grown grapes before, it might be hard to imagine how difficult it is to protect them from uh, just everything that wants to eat them when they get ripe. We have grapes at our house, and even from the very beginning, at the beginning of the year, there is this difficulty of trying to just keep them going. The, The vines grow great. But then there are always diseases early in the year, powdery mildew and rust. and, And if you don't protect them and spray them with the right thing, then... They fall off. And if you're diligent to do that, then during the summer months, it's fine when it's hot and and they're growing and they begin to get larger and larger. And then they start turning pink and red and purple, depending on what kind you have. And then it seems when they get ripe, the whole world knows about it. Every rat, possum, raccoon, skunk, bees, and yellow jacket, they all send text messages to each other. 
And they all tell each other that there is a huge yummy treat at the Hughes house. And then they jump upon it. They swarm upon it. One year we were laboring diligently to protect them from all the critters and and they were just hanging. We had about 50 clusters of grapes, some of them, you know, a foot and a half, just huge. It looked like, you know, something you'd get out of the land of Canaan when the spies went in. I mean, it was huge. And uh, and you just looked in there and saw all these clusters hanging in with, oh, man, they're just almost ripe. And we went on vacation for a week and we came back. There wasn't a single grape on any cluster. They were all on the ground, about two inches thick. What happened is the mockingbirds, they get up there, they perch on the little clusters of grape, and then they peck the grape. They get a little bit of juice on their bill, which they like, but it knocks the grape off on the ground. And of course, they don't fly to the ground and finish it off. They just peck another one and another one, another one, each one knocking a grape off. And they can just sit there and, and just pretty much clean a whole cluster off in no time and get a teaspoon of juice out of it. Of course, when they hit the ground and all the beetles and bugs and rats and nocturnal creatures come and they're eating it and you, all of a sudden it starts fermenting, it's a nightmare. And so, you know, if you have a, a vineyard, you need some, some people who are there watching, especially at harvest time. I mean, everybody wants to eat those grapes at harvest time. But if you could get them through to the place where you actually pick them and dry them, make wine out of them or whatever, then it's a huge cash crop. And so the owner is away and he's made an agreement with the, the vine growers that he will take a certain percentage. Sometimes it was a percentage of the crop and sometimes it was a flat rate. The owner just said, listen, every year I want this much from you. And regardless of what the grapes do, I just want this much. They would agree. And that way it would be incentive for the vine growers to work harder to get a bigger crop to make more money off of their efforts. And so that was common. Everybody knew it. And so Jesus puts forth this little scene. Look again towards the end of verse 10. But the vine growers, when the man sent his servant to collect the share of a harvest, the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he, the owner, proceeded to send another slave and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. To keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to the multitude. And all the while, the religious leaders are listening in. But really, they don't realize that Jesus has the gun under his arm. And he's pointing it at them. They're just caught up in the story going, what is he talking about now? The vineyard? You know, what's, what's, what's going on here? Vine growers. And they're kind of listening in, seeing real, if there's anything wrong with what Jesus says. They're listening intently. They're going to try and trap him in any word, any mistake he might make. They're listening. Their guard is down. And they all know that in the Old Testament, one of the common symbols used for Israel was a vine or a vineyard. And most prominently was Isaiah chapter 5. Turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 5. Towards the middle of your Bible and then to the right. The book of Isaiah chapter 5 where God describes Israel as a vineyard, but a vineyard that produces wild, sour grapes that aren't worth eating. And therefore he... He pronounces judgment. So this is a song all the leaders would have known this for sure. And most of the Jews, if they had any sort of devotion to scriptures or not, would have known this. Isaiah chapter 5, where we read 
Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He had built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice and behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. In other words, God gave Israel everything they needed, everything they needed to produce the fruit of righteousness. But instead they rebelled, they figuratively produced wild bitter grapes well in isaiah 5 god is the husbandman or the vine grower and not the religious leaders but the symbolism was there was in front and center in their mind all the jews knew this so as jesus begins to talk about this vineyard they're all thinking okay we're probably talking about israel here because this is how the jews did they'd like to teach in pictures and and so they're thinking okay where who are the vine growers and uh, who is the owner and who are these servants who are sent and beaten and they're trying to figure it out in their mind you see when israel was in sin what did god do he sent the prophets and how did they treat the prophets very poorly they persecuted them they rejected them And in some cases, they even killed them. Stephen, remember the first martyr of the church in Acts 7, throws this in to the end of his sermon, which makes the Jews so angry, they stone him to death. In Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, he says this, he's concluding, he's landing his sermon. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, And ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Oh man, that made them hot. You see, every generation was, was, was kind of embarrassed about their history. They were ashamed, especially the leaders. And every generation thought, well, yeah, our forefathers did that, but we would never do that. And then they did the same thing. The Jews could not deny it. They had a history of persecuting the prophets of God, the messengers of God. Well, today we have the words of the prophets preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. And they're calling us to pursue righteousness, to turn from sin, just like they did back then. We have it in a book, a perfect inspired book. 
And so when I speak to you, when the Sunday school person speaks to you, when a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, you hear somebody in the radio, you're reading your Bible, anytime you hear the word of God, that is a message to you from God. And we need to heed it. We need to listen to it. Sometimes you hear people say things like, I just wish God would tell me what to do. I just wish he would speak to me. I wish he would just give me my own custom private revelation just for me. You know, I just, I just want that, friend. Jesus has spoken to you through the prophets in many portions, in many ways. He has given you his word. He has given you his word, which Paul tells Timothy equips us for every good work in which peter tells us in first peter 1 verse 3 grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness you don't need any more private words you've got everything you need in this book and god's prophet spoke to you in this book the word of god and sometimes, you, I know, you get into situations where it just doesn't seem like you think, well, should I go this way or that way? Go to this college or that college? Buy this car or that car? Accept this job offer or that job offer? I mean, you know, sometimes there's not a verse. And you just wish, Lord, what should I do? But there are scriptures that address the situation. Like Psalm 37, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Or Proverbs, you know, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I mean, we know those scriptures, you know. Uh, We know the scriptures. Uh, Paul says, God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But the problem is, is sometimes we don't want to listen to David. We don't want to listen to Solomon. We don't want to listen to the apostles. And Jesus says, listen, do not be worried. Do not be anxious. We don't want to listen to Jesus. We're rejecting the messenger. Because we don't want that answer. We want our own custom adjusted answer that will suit our purposes. And God says, no, you probably should live by faith. You should should probably just trust me. You should probably remember that I am the king. That I rule heaven and earth and I know everything and you don't. And so why don't you just do what I wrote down? But a lot of people won't even read their Bible enough to know what the prophets have said. What the scriptures say, what God says, they won't even get into the book. And so God can speak to them. And the owner of the vineyard, obviously, is the father who is patient and long suffering. And he sends his prophets. And they speak their message. And we need to listen to it. And we need to do it. They have written to you. Just open your Bible and find out what God says through them to you. There is nothing so wonderful, so comforting, so precious than just spending time with the Lord every day. Some of you need to get into the habit of that. You're hit and miss. You know what I'm talking about. 
Sometimes you just, you get up and you get busy and you check emails and you're hurrying away to work and you just go the whole day and you've never spent time with the Lord. And other times, and you know this, if you're a believer, you open up God's word and you're reading some passage and all of a sudden you come across some, some passage or some verse or even part of a verse, sometimes even a word. And man, it just does it for you. It just blesses your soul. It's like, oh, this is so good. Thank you, Lord. And you're praising God and you cling to that word or that verse all day long or all week long or sometimes for months or even years. I I can remember certain verses that I just came across. It's just like, da, they just changed me. And they've been there the whole time. Do you know that? You need to know that. If you aren't experiencing that, it's broken. Life is broken for you. You, you aren't experiencing the abundant life. God wants to bless your soul. He wants you to come away going, oh man, my time with the Lord was awesome. And if that's not you, you're missing out. Because it should be awesome. It should be wonderful. It should be encouraging and convicting and challenging and soothing. So get into the book. Listen to the messengers of God. Third, do you reject Jesus himself? Look at verse 13. The owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? He's already sent three servants and they beat him up and kicked him out empty handed. He says, I know what I'll do. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. You need to see God's love in this. I mean, just think about it. You know, let's say you've got quite a bit of money. You've got companies in other countries. And, and so, you know, you, this one company, they've kind of cut off communication. You're thinking, you know, how come they aren't communicating with me? And we haven't received any of the dividends. And so you send one of your employees to that country to, you know, retrieve what's yours. And they beat him up and throw him on the plane and send him back. So you send another one and they do the same. And then you send another one. And then you do the same. Now, how many people would say, well, I guess I'll send my son, my only son whom I love. Would you do that? I wouldn't do that. But do you see the picture here? That's what God did for us. I mean, he sent his prophet saying, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. We said, no, no, no. Reject, reject, reject. Kill, abuse. And so he says, okay. I'll send my only son and I'll let you abuse him. I'm going to send him even though you're my enemies. I'm going to send him even though you're ungodly. I'm going to send him even though you don't want me reigning over you. I'm going to send him and I'm going to let you kill him because I love you. That's the picture here. The owner of the vineyard is the father The beloved son is Jesus. The wicked vine dressers are the leaders of Israel. The messengers are the prophets and the grapes are the fruit of righteousness. Jesus is describing both the past, present, and future in this one parable. It has amazing, amazing precision. Amazing precision. Just to say you're out and about and you come across some crime, a crime scene. 
I don't think I've ever come across a crime scene. And I live in L.A. I don't know why that is. But, you know, let's just say that you're out and about and all of a sudden there's all this, you know, yellow tape crime scene. Do not enter. Do not pass. And they have cardboard signs stuck up. Crime scene. Please crime scene. Do not enter. Do not enter. You see all the signs. You see all the messages. And you decide to enter. Because you're curious. By doing this, did you sin against the tape and the cardboard? No. The police are the ones who put up the signs and the tape. So by violating the tape, you have violated the authority of the police. But really, you haven't sinned against the police because it's the government that gives the police their authority. You have sinned against the government. You have broken the law, the government's law. Well, in a similar way... When a friend, when a preacher, when a teacher, when a radio, when you're reading your Bible, when you hear the messenger of God, you know, it's not the paper and ink that you've sinned against. And it's not Isaiah and the apostle John that you've sinned against. It's the one who gave them their authority. Who's that? God. You, you have sinned against God. And that's why when God speaks to us through his word, when we say no to it, we're rejecting the word of God incarnate himself, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. But when the vine growers, the Jewish leaders, saw him, the son who represents Jesus, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Notice the amazing, the amazing detail here. It's just such an incredible thing. The Jewish leaders both knew and taught that the Messiah would come, that the forerunner would come before him, that he would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He would rule and reign in Israel. He would defeat the enemies. He would be both king and priest. He would rule in Jerusalem, which meant what? If he came, they'd be out of a job. They'd be out of a job. And just like in the parable, the vine growers over the course of time become possessive of the vineyard and don't want to give it over to the owner, the rightful owner, and kill the messengers and kill the son to get it. So now Jesus constructs this parable which shows that The leaders, which is what's happening in Israel, have been in charge so long that they don't want to listen to the prophets and they don't want their own Messiah. They're willing to kill Jesus. They're trying to destroy Jesus so they won't get knocked off their perch. They're going to betray him in the hand of the Romans. And then they're going to find their own way to heaven. They've got their own righteousness. They've got their own standards. They'll get there somehow. In Pilgrim's Progress, after Christian has entered through the narrow gate, received his scroll of promise and lost his burden at the cross, and his friend Faithful has been martyred at Vanity Fair, he continues on the straight and narrow with a new friend, Hopeful. And Bunyan writes, Now a little below these mountains on the left hand lies the country of conceit from which there is a little crooked lane that comes into the way in which pilgrims walk. It was here that Christian and Hopeful met with a very brisk lad that came out of that country, and his name was Ignorance. So Christian asked him where he came from. 
and where he was going. And ignorance said, Sir, I was born in a country that lies off there a little to the left, and I am going to the celestial city. Christian replied, But how do you hope to get into the gate? For you may find some difficulty trying. As other good people do, ignorance said. But what have you to show at the gate, replied Christian, that the gate should be open to you? I know my Lord's will, said ignorance, and have lived a good life. I pay everyone his own. I pray, I fast, I pay tithes, I give alms, and have left my country for where I am going. But you don't But you didn't come through the narrow gate that is at the head of this way, Christian remarked. You came in over there through that crooked lane. And therefore I fear whatever you may think of yourself, when reckoning day shall come, you will be charged with being a thief and a robber and won't get admittance into the city. Gentlemen, ignorance said, offended, You are utter strangers to me. I don't know you. Be content to follow the religion of your own country. And I will follow the religion of mine. And I hope all will be well. And as far as the narrow gate that you talk of, all the world knows that it is a great way from our country. I cannot think of any man in our parts who knows the way to it, nor do I think it matters that they do so or not. Since we have, as you see, a fine, pleasant green lane that comes down from our country, which is another way. And when Christian saw that the man was wise in his own conceit, he said to Hopeful whisperingly, there is more hope for a fool than for him. It is not just the Jewish leaders that try to contrive their own way to heaven. It's many who call themselves Christians, who think that by going to church, by paying tax, by giving alms, tithing, serving, knowing God's will, that they'll get in. And sometimes people come to church for a lot of different reasons. Because their parents brought them and now they're here. Because there's somebody here they want to have a relationship with. Because it's their tradition to go to church. Because you're going through some hard times in your life. And you thought, well, if I give God a few Sundays, he'll probably fix things for me and make it better. And then I can go back to living like I want. But in your heart, you don't want Jesus reigning over you. In the past, you have not listened to Jesus' messengers, though the Bible has spoken and been available to you all along. You just don't want it. You refuse to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as your Lord. Instead, you have found your own little crooked lane. And you're trusting in that crooked way to get you to heaven. But it won't. And Jesus has a message for you. It's our fourth point. You will be judged. Look at the middle of verse 15. 
Jesus asked the chief priests, scribes, and elders a question concerning the wicked vine growers in the parable. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? It is at this point that they're all riled up. Jesus, being the master storyteller, has roped them in. And with rapt attention, the whole crowd is now fixed on Jesus. They're caught up in this story of betrayal, of treason, of murder. And he says, so what should be done to them? And the leaders and all the people are now listening. And at this point, Matthew's parallel account gives us a little bit more information that Luke leaves out. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 41, we learn that when Jesus asked this question, the crowd passionately answers and says, they will bring those wretches to a wretched end, is what they say. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in their proper season. And look at verse 16 of our text. Luke tells us that Jesus affirms their answers. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now what's amazing is, is Jesus gets the people so ensnared to the story so caught up in the story its betrayal is so severe that they and the religious leaders cry out and he tricks the religious leaders into pronouncing their own judgment in matthew 21 verse 43 jesus we 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 read says to the religious leaders therefore i say to you the kingdom of god will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. This was like the most horrifying thought that Jews could ever imagine. What? The kingdom of God taken away from God's chosen people? The kingdom of God taken away and given to another people? You mean the Gentiles? You mean we're not going to get in? The Gentiles are going to get in? Those dogs, those unclean dogs who don't have the law? You're kidding me. You're kidding me. And look at the middle of verse 16. We read, and when they heard it, they said, may it never be. This is the strongest statement, the negative statement you can make in the Greek language. Absolutely, positively not. No way. They can't believe it. You mean to tell me we're going to perish in hell and the Gentiles will be entering the kingdom? Duh. And we know that they were listening. And we know that it was right then that the hammer fell upon their hearts. Because Matthew 21 verse 45 tells us when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. He got them so caught up that they cried out their own condemnation. And then all of a sudden it just, that's us. They were the wicked vine dressers. God the Father was the owner. Jesus was the son. The prophets were the messengers. They pronounced their own judgment. They, Jesus got them to publicly commit to their own judgment. They tried to trap him. He trapped them. You never want to get in an argument with Jesus. He's really good at it. And those wicked vine growers would be removed and replaced by new ones. Look at verse 17. Jesus now throws the harpoon. 
Verse 17 says, but Jesus looked at them. Now he's looking at the Jewish leaders and he says, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief corner stone. Ow. Their minds, because they're experts in the law, instantly go to Psalm 118 verse 22 that Jesus just quoted. They are the builders. Jesus is the cornerstone. A cornerstone is that stone back then when you made a building, you dug a foundation, you found a perfect stone that was in a nice angle, was flat on top, you put it in the corner. All the rest of the building would be referenced on that one stone. That would be the plumb would be taken from that stone. The sides would be taken from that stone. The hypotenuse for the squareness of the the building would be taken from that stone. Everything was referenced on that stone. It was the most important stone. And the builders should know better, take the the most important stone, and they reject it. Just like they're going to reject Christ. Just like they're going to reject Christ. And then Jesus tells them the consequence, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And he takes two texts here. He takes a text from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, and he welds it to Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. The Isaiah text speaks of the, of being a stone of stumbling and shattering And then the Daniel text speaks of the kingdom of the Messiah, which will come like a stone carved without the hands of men, which will crush all of their kingdoms and scatter them like dust. And he just welds them together saying, you reject me, you will be crushed. You will be scattered like dust. And so the message Jesus communicates through all these 18 verses is this. You reject me. You're accepting judgment. You question my authority. You reject my prophets. You're rejecting me and you'll be judged. The good thing is, is Jesus hasn't come as judge yet. And he offers salvation to all who will believe. He is the loving savior today, but any moment, the judge And he is willing to forgive you. He died for you. He rose again for your justification. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you reject him, you are plummeting towards earth. And there will be a time when even pulling the ripcord won't help you. It will be too late. So if you haven't given your life to Christ, do so today. Because he is both savior today and judge tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have the opportunity to look at this text as we see Jesus' amazing ability to communicate, to speak the truth, to warn of real dangers, that he is the Messiah, that the prophets speak the truth, that John was a prophet, and that there is a way of salvation today, but for those who reject his authority, his messengers, and himself those people will certainly be judged and there will be no escape, no other way. If there is somebody here who has never repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, may they turn to Christ now in humble repentance and faith. Save them, Lord, as only you can, as you have promised to do so. And we will give you the glory because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.